Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, during this pandemic, I think I'm probably like a lot of people where... I'm using technology even more. It's not just Zoom. I'm thinking about just kind of my personal banking, for example. I'm much more uh, engaged with the digital offerings from my financial institution, and I can't even imagine why I would ever need to go into a, a branch again. But uh, And I think a lot of folks, you know, again, embracing technology across a lot of different fronts. Let's check in with Nisha Hathi, Chief Digital Officer for Charles Schwab. They have a new report out, Investing in Technology Study. And it's kind of looking at how the pandemic has changed tech trends. Nisha, thanks so much for joining us here. What are some of the key takeaways from your Charles Schwab report? Yeah, well, thanks thanks for having me. Um, and, uh, Paul, what you shared is probably the experience that many have had, which is we saw, um, you know, in our survey, we saw a lot of investors talking about how they've used technology in more and different ways than they ever had prior to the pandemic. Um, but what, one of the interesting things is that they continue to say that they're going to use technology at an accelerated pace. And when we ask them, however, what it, what it is that drives trust in technology, often they come back to the way that we used to work, which is they want to be able to have access to humans, um, whether it's on a, on a phone line or even actually, as you mentioned, walking into a branch. So, you know, there's this desire to use more technology, but at the same time, wanting to build trust through human connection. Are there demographic or generational differences in that desire for human versus technology contact? You know, there are some, um, although, you know, not as much as we might think. So, um, so for example, one of the, the questions we asked was, you know, do you think it's possible to have a relationship with a financial company through technology only? And if you ask the overall population, just over half would tell you that, that it is possible to have a, a personal relationship with a financial services institution with technology only. But if you ask what we call Generation I, so Generation Investor, which is, um, folks who came into investing for the first time in 2020 or 2021, they would tell you, well, almost three quarters of them would tell you that it is possible to have a personal relationship through technology only. Now, that Generation I does skew a little bit younger, but really it's more about newer investors coming into the industry. So we've seen, uh, Nisha, really since the beginning of this pandemic, a spike in retail trading in the stock market, whether it's some of the meme stocks that got so much attention earlier on or just in general. And a lot of folks, uh, including, I believe, Charles Schwab, you know, low cost or no cost uh, trading. Give us a sense of kind of what you're seeing in the, in the retail side of the business. Yeah, I mean, the engagement, digital engagement, and that's, you know, a lot of our trading comes through our digital channels, of course, is just tremendous. I mean, we saw um, over a billion and a half mobile and web logins last year, um, four times the trading on wow. the mobile app than we've ever seen before. So incredible engagement, um, especially earlier this year in 2021 when, you know, when markets were very active. Um, we saw a lot of engage engagement and that continues, although it has, you know, stepped back just a bit. Well, on that point, obviously, there was this narrative last year, I mean, even in the pandemic and earlier this year, where it was all about all the liquidity was out there. You had ample stimulus coming on the monetary side. And then on the fiscal side, you had stimulus checks burning a hole in people's pockets. Now that those 
impulses are kind of fading. How is retail investor behavior changing? Well, what's interesting, you know, and one of the things we asked about in the survey was, you know, why are you investing and what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And while, you know, I think we talk a lot about the investors who are, you know, trading the meme stocks and kind of really active in the market, um, a lot of these investors, this Generation I, would tell us that they're actually trying to figure out how to get to better financial outcomes. You know, they they actually had this this disruption, the pandemic disrupted their lives, and they've had that moment of reflection and, and trying to figure out what to do next with their financial lives so that they have a security net. So we, we've seen, you know, an increase in, for example, engagement in digital financial planning. So, you know, in just in the second quarter, we had 20,000 folks do digital financial plans through our um, Schwab.com channel. And so it's this, you know, it's not just about trading, um, but it's actually now about getting educated about how to actually build out your financial portfolio um, and get to the outcomes that you're looking for. Nisha, give us a sense of kind of what a typical Charles Schwab customer looks like today versus maybe several years ago. It just feels like with all the technological changes and advancements and ease of interaction, maybe skewing a little bit younger than maybe we've seen in the past. Um, we are a little bit a uh, little bit younger than we were a few years ago. Um, over, you know, I think over 52 percent of our investors are uh, uh, under the age of 41 at this point. So, when they're coming in every year, so our new to firm investors, um, and uh, and they do tend to leverage digital channels much more than you know our traditional investors. So, definitely more engaged digitally, but. As I mentioned at the beginning, I think what's most interesting is even so, you know, Generation I, as I mentioned, even when you ask them about, you know, what what happens during a market downturn, what yeah. do you want when you what kind of support do you want? You know, one of the stats we have is 83 percent of them wanted to talk to a person to discuss their finances when there was a market downturn. So even mm -hmm. though we talk about them as being different, sometimes I wonder if they're really <laughs> that different because they still want that human connection to build the trust and confidence in their strategy. Yeah, really fascinating stuff, but uh, good to see some of the younger folks uh, getting in invested. Uh, Nisha Hathi, uh, Chief Digital Officer for Charles Schwab. They have a new report out, Investing in Technology Study, how the pandemic has kind of changed um, maybe how some people view their investing habits and the emergence of technology to help them uh, interact with their uh, financial services provider. So interesting stuff coming out of Charles Schwab. ESG investing is not for the faint of heart. Just listen to a couple of these headlines just in the last couple of days. Oil fouled California beaches rekindled demands for offshore ban. Tesla racism trial juror says company failed to protect workers. Facebook's Zuckerberg denies putting profit over user safety. And I'm supposed to apply ESG investing characteristics um, in my portfolio. <laughs> That's got to be tough. James Katz, founder and CEO of Humankind Investments. He does just that. James, I'd love to get your thoughts about when you see headlines like that as an investor, um, how do you think about investing in companies through an ESG lens? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. And just to answer your question, I think if there's a takeaway from the stories that we're seeing, about oil spills and discrimination lawsuits um, and, and all this, I think it's that a company's human impact has consequences. And when, pe and when companies hurt people, they'll have the incentive to come together to complain and ultimately either punish or reform the company through legal action, additional regulation, etc. And, and that can really hurt the bottom line for shareholders. How do you quantify that quote-unquote damage a company does? Sure. Well, so at Humankind Investments, we try to put a dollar value on every impact that a company has on humanity. So 
starting, of course, with investors. Investors are people, too, and they should have a good return on their investment and not be defrauded, right? Employees, um, are they being treated fairly? Are they being paid well? Customers, are you creating a product that's useful and beneficial, or is, is it toxic? And society, right? You could be creating a lot of value for your investors, customers, and employees, but maybe your factory is spewing a lot of pollution into a, into a town somewhere, and, and people in that town are paying millions of, doll- of dollars in medical bills as a result. So we try to put a dollar value on all these different impacts, add them up, and that's how we come up with a humankind value of what each company is providing to, to humanity. Super voting stock. James, that's a problem here. So, I mean, take a look at a company like Facebook, where Mark Zuckerberg uh, has 80% of the voting stock, um, super voting stock. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that in ESG? Does that just is that a screening item, or you just say I'm staying away from super voting companies that have the super voting structure? Sure. Well, the way we deal with that um, at Humankind is we preferentially invest. We work to preferentially invest in the share classes that have more voting power. Um, so, you know, just because a company has different kinds of, of, of share classes with differential voting power, it doesn't mean necessarily that you know, they're an evil company right off the bat. I think it's just a question of making sure that we're investing in the, in the share class that will hopefully give us the, the biggest voice in, in how the company is going to be run. When you are approaching ESG investing, how hard is it to avoid kind of greenwashing? That seems to be a perennial problem in ESG. Sure. So um, I kind of have a simple trick for, for the folks at home who are trying to figure out, you know, whether something is greenwashing or not. Um, I think the question that you have to be asking yourself is, what is the nature of the asset manager that's providing the ESG product or service? Is ESG just one of many flavors of investing for them, or is it the only flavor worth having? Because think about what these kind of large traditional asset managers are saying when they have a bunch of non-ESG products and then also some ESG um, on the side. They're saying, look, we did the research, we figured it out, these are the good companies, these are the bad companies, and we only invest in the good companies in these few portfolios. But in all the rest of our business, we ignore everything that we just learned, and it's business as usual, we invest in all the bad companies. So if they're not taking their own socially responsible investment research seriously, then why should we? James, one of the things I've heard from folks that are active in ESG investing is that the quality of the data they need in their analysis just isn't up to par. I mean, if I'm a, for my financial analysis, I've got the income statement, the balance sheet, the you know, cash flow statement. For ESG, it comes down to I don't have great data. Give us a sense of where we are in terms of ESG data and, and its ability to help you in your analysis. Sure. I agree that's probably one of the biggest hurdles that um, people who want to invest in a socially responsible way face. Um, and, and out there, that, you know, there, we identified a lack in, in a lot of the data that exists. And that's why at Humankind, we actually work to create a lot of our own data. Um, and and it's, really, it's, it's definitely the biggest challenge, I think, that people are facing um, out there. But we're actually working to solve it at Humankind. So given all the data that you have, where do you see the greatest opportunities to invest? Um, the greatest opportunities? Well, the, the way that we look at things, it's really a question of where there's um, the most positive human impact versus the most negative human impact. So avoiding companies that are, um, you know, involved in causing a great deal of death and harm and destruction um, and really over-investing actually in companies um, that are creating positive value by saving lives. So, you know, healthcare um, companies that, that are doing a bunch of, farm, you know, healthcare R&D that will hopefully um, extend and improve, um, you know, human life, mm-hmm. companies that are providing water access, food access. These are things that really help people uh, you know, thrive and, and, and flourish. And that's, that's where we think there's more opportunity from a socially responsible investing perspective. 
Yeah, James, just uh, about 10 seconds. Just give us a sense of how your returns have been. Um, so in terms of the returns, um, well, so we, um, we've been generally speaking, um, you know, tracking the market more or less, although I've actually been looking to see, you know, some, some divergence because the way that we invest is actually not just tracking a general index. So, um, the way that we think about these, um, you know, these sort of performance metrics is actually really quite different, but. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what that's going to look like in the future. All right, James, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. James Katz, founder and CEO of Humankind Investments. The volatility continues in this market. Uh, we've had you know 1% moves in either direction uh, over the last four days, and today we've got about a six-tenths move down in the S&P. Let's get a sense of whether we need to get accustomed to this volatility. Let's check in with a professional Rich Steinberg, Chief Market Strategist at the Colony Group. They have $17 billion in assets under management. I think they're somewhere up in Boston or something like that. And I think they play baseball up there. I'm not sure. <laughs> Rich, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about this volatility. Is it something we should be concerned about? Or is this just what you see when markets are at or near all-time highs? Not only, are they, not only the issue around all-time highs, but I think investors are struggling with the growth value dynamics in the markets, and you're seeing kind of these mini rotations uh, from you know small cap back to mega cap, and then mega cap being oversold and growth going one way or another. And I think we just need to embrace the volatility somewhat <laughs> um, and allow investors to reposition portfolios that might have gotten out of sync with either their asset allocation or sector or asset class weightings and use the volatility as your friend and not necessarily your foe. So you think it's not time to maybe be pulling back on risk here? Listen, the, over the last 40 years, we three quarters of the time, you get 12 to 14% intra-year drawdowns with the market still finishing up. This is why equities give you a higher long-term return than treasury bills. So you need to be in it to win it. And you need to understand your own kind of risk profile and when those monies are going to be needed, if you're an endowment, if you're a family, if you're a foundation. So it's, you know, risk is very personal. All right. So we're heading into Q3 earnings season. Uh, earnings are always important to these markets. What do you need to see? What do you expect to see? What do you need to see out of this earnings season? Listen, I think we're going to continue to have the winners being rewarded and the losers being spanked. Uh, but, you know, margin numbers are quite high uh, and you're starting to continue to see pretty decent revenue growth. Just to kind of put some numbers onto it, you know, uh, projected earnings growth for next year is, is like 9.6% and revenue growth is just shy of 7%. We're going to see some companies use the pandemic and kind of supply chain issues as as um, excuses. So we have to really see where their core businesses are. And I think it's important for investors not to be all in on like a value opening trade and not to be all in in mega cap growth, but to kind of continue to walk that fine line of a balance between both uh, because earnings are going to still evolve over the next couple quarters. Well, Rich, you talk about kind of the supply chain excuse. To me, that seems pretty valid given some of those constraints that are out there. If they prove to be more 
persistent than maybe the market anticipates right now. What is the implication of that? So I actually think they are. I didn't mean to minimize it. I, I appreciate your comment. Um, the supply chain issues are real, but the question is whether or not that that pent up demand. Maybe we have a <clears throat> a short term issue in in earnings, but the outlook for the quarters coming out starts to look better. I think it's a wait and see kind of issue that we have to uh, continue to evaluate, and as the Fed is. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Rich, what are the sectors then, given that backdrop, given your expectations, what are the sectors where you guys are you know, doing some work these days? Yeah. So I, you know, in the portfolio that I run for the firm, I'm, I kind of float at 30,000 feet. I think you'd need to, I've, I had trimmed back some, some tech exposure um, and I'm overweight healthcare. I have a little bit of kind of like a low volatility and dividend play just because dividends did not work out last year. Um, the thing that's perplexing, especially today, is you're seeing a lot of weakness in small cap. Mm. Um, I'm really interested in adding to financials, but I'm not there yet. And you're seeing this kind of weird rotation the last few days out of, you know, out of financials and out of small cap. And, you know, if, if the yield curve does steepen, <clears throat> you would think that financials should be a place to go as a small cap just because of the makeup of that index. Yeah. It's not playing out yet. No, Rich, I'm so glad you brought up the small caps because I just pulled up a chart on my Bloomberg terminal and it is up and to the right through about mid-March, you know, really solid and then just totally flat lines for the next six months, really. What do you think would be the catalyst to renew some of that excitement in the small cap kind of cyclical space? So I think it's probably a three-legged stool, right? You have kind of the, the yield curve steepening, but not so much that it'll kill the economy. Um, and I think over the last 10 plus years, it's been like mega cap growth um, and kind of a rotation to people being back to overweight. And I would add mid cap back into that. Um, and those tend to be more domestically oriented. So if we start to, you know, get back to kind of normal growth rates, then I think and you have a strong dollar based on higher um, interest rates, small and mid cap could outperform. Additionally, like I said, there's a lot of financials in small cap. Mm. Hey, Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts on these markets here as volatility picks up really over the last four or five trading sessions. Uh, good to get a little bit of a, a mooring here. Rich Steinberg, Chief Market Strategist at the Colony Group. This is Bloomberg. Philip Palumbo, founder, CEO, and Chief Investment Officer. I'm sure he's got some thoughts. He's Palumbo Wealth Management joining us on the phone. So, Phil, when you see markets like this, again, these kind of significant moves on a daily basis, seemingly without much direction, how are you framing this market as we go into Q3 earnings? Yeah. Well, first, hello, Paul and Kaylee. Thank you for having me on again. It's good to be back. Um, so, you know, we're pretty uh, vocal that, you know, we believe that we're in a, a bubble with risk assets. A lot of strategists really don't want to talk much about that, and but ultimately, when you think about the speculation that's going on there in markets, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's other cryptocurrencies, NFTs, uh, valuations of some of these innovative businesses, um, yeah, we're at levels that are are overvalued. So you know, we're in the camp that when you're in a bubble-like environment, it could go on for longer than people think. So you can't try to time when it's going to pop. But we think what's prudent to do in this current environment today 
is to reduce risk with your equity portfolios, right? So, for example, if you have 50% in equities or you're supposed to be in 50% equities and it's 65% equities or 60%, you've got to rein that in and bring it back down to 50% or even maybe get, maybe get a little bit more conservative. So pulling back on equity exposure and then adding exposure to what? So we believe having cash right now is okay, even though it's not mm. paying much. But if you're in a, a bubbly type environment where valuations are rich, having some cash available to buy in on any type of dip, we think could make sense. The way we run portfolios, and I talked about this a bit last time, is we do use gold, we do use commodities, and we use intermediate and longer-term treasuries and tips. So we will rebalance capital into those particular areas as well as some cash. All right. So, uh, Phil, as we head into this third quarter earnings season here, what are you going to be watching for um, over the next several weeks? Mm -hmm. Well, expectations are that we had peak earnings already. So we think there may be more disappointments to the downside than to the upside based on supply issues, inflationary pressures a lot of these companies are facing. So ultimately, we don't have high expectations for earnings going into the season, which could also increase volatility. I hear the word stagflation getting thrown out more and more and more. Do you think that is an apt description for the environment that we're in? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't. I think that you know, we had a, a big move from the bottom from March of 2020 to where we are today. And you think about what we're faced with going forward. You know, we have now a Fed that probably will taper sooner than longer. They may, they may raise rates in 22 sooner than we think because of inflationary pressures. You have the China issues that are going on that could be contagion. COVID's not over yet. And, and, and you have the debt ceiling and, and other debt, you know, high debts all around the world. So when you have a situation like that, it's really tough to get strong growth. The only area that gives me a bit of confidence is if there is a fiscal, a fiscal bill that gets passed, and if they can get along and, and make something happen within Congress, that could be one reason that could bring the leg up, uh, give, give us one more leg to the upside here overall with markets. But other than that, it seems like a lot of challenges in front of us. So the, H, the asymmetric risk for the market, we believe, is more to the downside than to the upside. How much downside, Phil? A lot of folks were saying, you know, a 5-10% pullback in this market would be uh, a healthy aspect to what is otherwise a uh, bull market. How are you thinking about the next pullback in this market? Again, we did it you know, roughly 5% off the S&P high. Uh, is that it, or we have more to go? Mm -hmm. Well, historically, when you get to a point where a Fed starts to talk about tapering and does start to taper and, and move into a stimulus plan that, that takes money out of the economy, liquidity out of the economy, you could see a 10% to 20% correction. You know, if you look historically, that's been the case. So we wouldn't be surprised for that. We don't really try to time markets in the short term or really try to figure that out. We really feel that's difficult to do. You know, that's why we really believe if investors go back to fundamentals of portfolio management and just say to themselves, you know, I have 50%, I'm supposed to be 50% of my money, I'm supposed to have 50% of my money in stocks. It's now 60 or 65%. Let me rein that in to bring me back to 50%. I'm not trying to time the market. All I'm doing is I'm selling at high levels, not low levels. And we believe that's a prudent thing to do, right? Rather than trying to figure out is the market going to be down 10% from here or 20% from here, um, we just think that's, that's very difficult to do and it doesn't make any sense from a portfolio management standpoint. 
Trying to time the market is tough, but we've seen time and again that buying of the dip always seems to work. So maybe that's why you want to have a little bit of cash on hand, as Philip recommends, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate uh, getting your thoughts, as always. Phil Palumbo, he's founder, CEO, and chief investment officer of Palumbo Wealth Management. They have about $300 million in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Great Neck, New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.